So I'm here at the TEDx Luxembourg City event and I have got with me my first speaker who is a very French sounding name but is not French at all, Emile Studem. Emile Studem, yeah, it is a French name but I'm definitely not French. Your, your accent says quite a different story. Apparently you live in Toronto but clearly the accent. Yes. Yeah, I live in Toronto now. I've been there for, I don't know, 20 odd years uh, to I built my first company which was the Aussie X part of the tour but I've remained there now and now I'm doing my thing with my uh, corporate teams and professional sports teams. And I must say to our listeners, this TEDx event has the theme Breaking Barriers. Yes. Dirk, right at the beginning, in fact, he mentioned that most people have bought tickets on their own, which I also thought was very, very impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're here talking about teamwork and what yeah. makes a great team. I've made lots of notes, as you can yeah. see. I have lots of notes. Yeah, yeah. No, no, these are for me. No, 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 don't, don't read, don't read. This is written in the dark. Um, now, for the people who are listening here and who didn't get to see your... Yeah talk yep. what are your tips for making a great team yeah look the the big idea for us was was catch the good now by good we mean catch the right behavior and not just the right result and so look in teams we're looking to build trust and if we consistently catch and recognize our mates effort and their behaviors we're putting dollars into that trust bank and that over time um, when we're under pressure and we're under stress and things aren't working as well it means we're more likely to speak up, we're more likely to reach out for help, which is a really big sign of trust. People ask for help faster. And so one thing we want to really promote is get into the habit of recognising each other's efforts because you're not always going to get great results, but you can always recognise the efforts so that ultimately when we're under pressure, we're more likely to stick together, we're more likely to have the tough conversations and they're the moments that really... Um, make us a great team and take us from good to great, right? And I really liked your concept of trust dollars. So trust we dollars, have catch yeah. the good, we have building yeah. trusting relationships, and then we have the process. So on the relationships part, obviously trust mm. is yeah, extremely important. But I like your concept of the bank of trust. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and I think one thing I see with, especially clients that I start with, you might get a new you know, a presentation, and you look at it and your brain's going, that's great, that's great, that's great. But then you outwardly say, number four, I don't like that. Now, you've just subconsciously, you know, consciously in your brain said three good things, but you've spoken out loud to the individual, I don't like four, fix that, and six is no good. Good, off you go. And you told us that we should have around about, in the best teams, yes. six positives six to one negative. One. Do you know what this reminded me of? Uh, Marriage. Marriage. <laughs> you know what? Doing this talk has really made me, and I had a moment actually when I was writing the talk and I was at the kitchen table and my little son Rio is five. He's just, you know, pushes the buttons. And I had this moment where I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm shitty with him and I shouldn't be. And I actually caught myself in the moment and it actually made some of the talk, which is pretty cool, came off the back of that moment of catching the good in a moment of only catching the bad. And that's pretty cool actually now that I think about it and remember that little moment because it shifted my perspective and it ended up writing some of the talk actually, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and then you also had the, the quote from Brené Brown, which is, trust is built in the tiny moments every day. And yeah. most people will know Brené Brown. She's a wonderful yeah, right. TED alumnus yeah. herself. Yeah, yeah. And, and she has great concepts around uh, being vulnerable and yeah. openly vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, I think at the end of the day, if you, 
what, what the Catch the Good Idea does is it, like I said, it builds the trust bank. So we're not saying that the, the tough conversations don't need to be had. We're saying that those tough conversations have to be had and they'll happen faster if you've got a replenished trust bank. So if you catch the good and keep replenishing it, you can afford to lose. Because we're only human. When you get information or feedback that you don't like, we're not robots. It's not like, oh, that's, that's fine. We still, we always say don't take feedback personally, but we're not robots. So, and Renee Brown's right, those little moments keep replenishing it so that when we have to stick together under pressure, we're likely to do it. And one of her things I like about it is the people you can trust the most, they'll ask for help the fastest. So if the trust bank's strong, people speak up and they don't hide their errors. They go, hey, I'm struggling here and now let's get, let's get together. And because, you know, three people working on a target will beat 10 people working on the target alone. So we've got to leverage that power of the team, right? And on the power of the team, another thing I loved that you spoke about, uh, which was under the concept of process, is not what's in it for me, but Mm. what's in it for we. And in certain cultures, in our time, it can be quite egotistical. So then how do you, when you go and you work from, you know, sport now to corporate culture, how do you bring in that we, not the me? Yeah, look... I think when I, in the talk, I talked about what's the simplest way to get started. Start your meetings and make your agenda item the first 10 minutes. Just catch the good stories. When you share catch the good stories, you usually talk about behaviour because you describe what someone did, right? That's actions, that's behaviours. You often will shout out someone and go, hey, we got this, we got this uh, progress because this person helped me. That puts dollars in the relationship bank, if you will. And then often the stories will contain, hey, we fixed the process or we realise we don't need that process anymore and we've shortened it. So when you catch the good, you're usually going to talk about behaviour, you're going to um, talk about the relationships that you have and you're probably going to talk about process. So you're now talking about the three parts of the formula just by scheduling 10 minutes at the beginning of a team meeting. And then what happens is it becomes quite contagious. So then people are just catching the good all over the place. Something doesn't work. Right, let's jump on it faster, better, and we do it together. Well, it's sort of like just uh, creating and engendering that positive atmosphere, which is exactly what the second speaker spoke about. Yeah, and look, because our brain's so wired for what's not working, like it's designed that way, we wouldn't be here as a species, right? We have to intentionally catch the good, because if we don't, the brain will only naturally... Like my story about my son, Rio. I was only catching the things that were annoying me. But there were so many great things. In the morning, we'd ride, I can draw cartoons pretty good, so I draw the Tassie Devil, and he colours it in. Like, all these beautiful... That's moments. the Tasmanian, Tasmanian Devil, for anybody who doesn't know. <laughs> I've really dropped me Aussie now, so... But, yeah, and I think that if we... If we by, by scheduling it, what we find is that people start to then, it just kind of comes a little bit contagious. So then when you get the report and you go, oh, I don't like, oh, hang on. No, I'll just start by catching the good. I love one, two. Well, I've never heard that before. Love that. Now four and six need the most amount of work. The team member then walks away going, great. I know what my boss likes, dollars in the trust bank. Now I'm going to do my best because people will, if they feel recognised, will work harder. Now they go off to fix four and six, they're charged. 
It effectively goes across everything. It goes, I mean, I'm thinking of teaching here, I'm thinking of parenting as well. And then just finally, I'd like you to tell us about the person who really developed this concept and it came back to Aussie Rules. So this very famous football legend. Yeah, he's a legend. So Ruzi took the work to the Pro Sports Week of Aussie Rules Football in 2002. He was a... And his full name is? Paul Ruse. Yeah. Yeah, Ruzi, as we would call him in Australia. Um, he was a great... A bit of a rarity, actually. He was a great player. Um, Travelled around North America. His wife's from uh, California. And went around to all major professional sports in America. Met Phil Jackson and the Chicago Bulls, the San Francisco 49ers and observed all different techniques of training. He looked at himself and went, I'm a very, I can technically teach this sport, but I don't know much about building culture. And so then when he looked at what culture's made up of, well, it's about behavior, it's about strong relationships, and it's about having a strong process. So instead of focusing on talent and outcomes, he flipped it and said, right, behaviors, relationships, process, and the Swans were perennial average, right? Yeah, three seasons later, wins a championship. His approach becomes really well known, and then other clubs started to adopt it. And it just—it's now common practice that that's the way we look at professional sport in Australia. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Emil. You can be delighted you finished your talk. You were the first talk of the day. It's yes. no easy feat. <laughs> yeah. And finally, what brought you to Luxembourg? Pardon? What brought you to Luxembourg? Yeah, uh, a good mate of mine, Jamie Cohen, who's done a TED talk. He's a he reads people's personality profiles from their handwriting. Very cool bloke. He is a mate of mine. Um, had seen me do a bit of work. And he's like, Emil, you've got to do a TED Talk. So he handed me over to Dirk, who's the organiser. Dirk and I jumped on the phone. I think, I think it was last summer. I was in Australia visiting family. Bit of an interview. I sent him the Dragon's Den episode online. Where you have wonderful hair. Yeah, thank you. Yes, so it was very good. And then he thought... Um, I think he thought that our talk would marry into this theme here and I jumped at the opportunity and I've never been to Luxembourg and it's awesome so I'm going to have a good day travelling around and then head back tomorrow. Well, it's lovely to have you here. You Enjoy much. some of the wonderful food yeah, provided do. by Cocot. Thank you, Emil. Thank so you. Much. Cheers. The Lisa Burke Show. So I now have the second speaker of the day with me, a wonderful, beautiful, young Turkish lady, 23 years old, who does gene editing for a living. I'm going to try my best at your wonderful Turkish name, which is Özgü Gümüştükan. Yes, that's perfect. Oh, well, that, I, I doubt it's perfect, but it's probably vaguely close. <laughs> now, you had a fabulous talk and congratulations. You know, you, you were radiating on stage your energy and your intelligence. You moved from Turkey in order to become a scientist. You have a very deep passion for science. And in fact, what you spoke to us about was the fact that we can all increase our likelihood of being lucky. How can we do this? So, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm super happy to um, be able to talk to you um, about something that I feel very strongly about, um, my passion. So. I, um, I think that luck is, as I mentioned in my talk, it's something that is in our nature. So we call, we call it luck, but it's actually a result of certain behaviors and um, a collection of our attitudes and our mindsets. 
So we call this luck because I I think that maybe sometimes we we tend to under undermine ourselves. We we tend to think of um, everything that we do, uh, especially if it's if it's some. Uh, amazing accomplishment. We we tend to think of this as a, a result of an exterior force, a mystical uh, or, or even randomness, you know. And I I think that being a scientist and having that background, I think that it's it's really it's not. It's not random. It's entirely in in our DNA. It's entirely in ourselves to to create this opportunities for ourselves and and to find this luck whatever it is that we call luck and uh, and you actually spoke about Richard Wiseman I know of him and his work in Hertfordshire he's a, a scientist himself of course he's written many books and funny talks very funny talks <laughs> and you mentioned that in his work as a psychologist he says that we can actively work in increasing our luck you go through four steps the first one you've just mentioned which is to notice opportunities and you said also you developed that scientifically about neural pathways yeah so as you mentioned he's he's an amazing uh, person he he's very impressive and i kind of followed the um framework that he laid out and i as i said he explains all of this with psychology because that's his um that's his domain i as a biologist i tend to explain everything in my life with biology so i tried to when i was reading up on him and reading his book i i found myself trying to explain everything with biology so this kind of awakened this feeling inside of me that i need to share this idea with everyone you know i need to tell the world that okay you can psycho- psychologically edit yourself but maybe before that you can also try to biologically edit yourself you know um by editing your the, the way in which you function that is going to have a first impact on your biology you can maybe after that get to your psychology and then you mentioned some of the very basic things you in fact quoted some i think it was chinese scientists who've done uh, work on sleep and the fact that just before the rem cycle of sleep there's a huge increase in dopamine so talk to us about the power of dopamine yeah so dopamine is a neurotransmitter and neurotransmitters are essentially the way in which our body sends signals so from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet um there are neurons that connect absolutely every part of our body and neurotransmitters so neuro as in in relation to our neurons and transmitters as in something that transmits a signal they uh, by by kind of forming this network of a telling b b telling c what to do and all the way until z they're able to transmit a signal so dopamine is the way in which we respond to essentially motivation so the thing that makes us get up in the morning the thing that makes us do essentially anything is mo- dopamine and as i mentioned in my talk there's a positive feedback loop if you if you make this one little change that is going to increase your dopamine you already make yourself enter this cycle of positive of pa- positive feedback that is going to make you do amazing incredible things and associated with that listen to your intuition which again you've spoken about the fact that every day you take pre and probiotic supplements which reduces anxiety and inflammation exactly so um i think we tend to sometimes turn to 
As uh, these days, I know that we are all very busy people. We tend to overlook our nutrition a lot because it's. I think it's the first thing to easily neglect, and we forget. And maybe most of us don't even know that our nutrition is essential to the functioning of everything in our body. What we put in our body is what we get at the end. So pre and probiotics are supplements. I mentioned in my talk that these things are things that you can easily find. So at supermarkets, pharmacies, um, and they can really make a big difference in, in, your, in all your aspects, in all aspects of your life, health, your, um, your, the way in which you work, your relationships. So it's something very simple that you can do that will create insane impact in your life. Another point, given your science as well, is epigenetics. The fact that throughout our whole lives, most of us go around unaware that we can turn genes on and off and the power we have inside ourselves. So you talk about sleep, you talk about um, the gut, to have a positive outlook, and then you talk about resilience. Exactly. So I uh, personally feel very... I, I'm very interested by epigenetics because I think um, recently, so I guess in the last 50 to 100 years, uh, the concept of genetics and genomics, um, has it was a very hot topic in science. So when epigenetics was discovered, it was really a huge thing because previously we thought that what we, what we got was what we could work with. But now we know that it's all these little things that we do in our lives that turns these genes on and off. And actually, epigenetics also plays a huge role on the development of cancer. So this is something, as I mentioned, that I'm working on specifically right now, the genetics of cancer. And it's not just, you know, making yourself more optimistic or pessimistic, but it's actually things that, are, that can be so serious, such as cancer. So essentially, it's, as I mentioned, stress, smoking, drugs, all these things don't even make you a only a pessimistic or an optimistic person, but they decide on if, if you're going to live a healthy and happy life or if you're going to struggle in life with your health. So it's, it's truly something very important to think about. It's not just what we, what we get from our mothers and fathers, but it's our own decisions. And then you ended with the beautiful photo of the axolotl, whom we all love. I encourage you all to go and Google one of those to see what they look like if you don't already know what they look like and why are they important in nature. Exactly. So axolotls, um, as I mentioned, they are so insane because first of all they're the cutest thing on earth um, I don't even want to mention how they look like aliens it makes you think that you know maybe we don't need to look outside of earth to find aliens but in, in, in our planet there are so many alien like species it's, it's crazy even in the human race that yeah 100% yeah <laughs> so um, I, I find axolotls absolutely uh, fascinating because they're adorable and they, they have this insane ability to regenerate. And there's also a lot of research going into regeneration because um, longevity is also a hot topic right now. So a lot of people who want to live forever. <laughs> and um, I think that there's also a lot of research on how we can kind of maximize our use of stem cells. 
So a lot of uh, a lot of these creatures that have this insane ability are being scrutinized uh, very intensely, and I think that it's um, it's amazing because we're the more we learn about the planet in which we live, the more we will be able to maximize our ability to to live here in in harmony with everything else that is here. So well, I can hear the gong is going behind. I'm sure now that you've got your wonderful talk, Ash, the way you can go in and with your very proud family, you can enjoy the next six talks of the afternoon. We can't wait to hear the rest of your work as you go forward in life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm also super excited to hear the rest. Thank, Thank you. The Lisa Burke Show. Welcome back. I now have our third speaker. Oh, what sort of speaker? Musician extraordinaire. And Martina, you were on stage with your band. It was just fabulous. The band is called Authentica. And you showed us, you displayed to us, you performed for us how to layer a song, how to build a song. Where did the idea come from? The idea is to show how music can be something accessible when you um, really want to see how to put something together playfully. And it's a way for creativity to flourish, to find the right ingredients to be putting them together. And I use the metaphor of baking a cake where you have multiple layers to show how to put together a song. And you started with the wonderful, well, you had uh, three other musicians on stage. You started with a percussionist. You did a lot of different types of music. You did Celtic, you did sort of South American music. And you mentioned classical music as well, of course, and the complexity of that with 100 people in an orchestra. Then you added in the bass guitar. And then you added in your wonderful pianist performance yourself, a piano and flute as well. And I think you had a recorder there too, along with your voice and an acoustic guitar. So you're layering up these flavors. You also showed us your deep passion for Celtic music. Where does this come from? So the folk music is something that I love because it carries the cultural heritage of a country and it's a rich variety of all of the songs and tunes that uh, are passed down from one generation to another. And for us, it's a way of building on those things that came before us and to uh, contribute to the timeless creativity of, of humanity. I should have said folk music. Sorry, Celtic music is what is in my mind because, of course, that's the, the folk music of where I am from. And, of course, you did it in many different languages, which shows the complete complexity and the beauty of the range of languages that you possess and many people in Luxembourg possess. Do you think it's possible for somebody to come to music later in life? Yes, absolutely. And you should start with what lights up your soul as an instrument or with the voice. So what is it that, that you like most, whether it's piano or singing or any other kind of instrument? And then step by step, you can build your, your you put your creativity into it and uh, make wonderful music. Another thing we saw watching you and the band members is the wonderful rapport you had between one another, just with a look, how you work together as a band. I mean, of course, you may not be aware of this anymore because it's just second nature, but it's that energy between you as musicians. Talk to us about that unspoken conversation. So... The uh, energy between the musicians is what is going to transmit also in the music that we give to the audience. And so it's really important uh, in the rehearsals or even on stage to really be in tune with one another. And uh, it goes through everybody's instruments and everybody's instrument becomes the voice that we talk with each other. So it's really great to be able to blend them all together. Do you have a favorite type of music? 
Well, as my talk was about folk music, I love that a lot, and actually all the music that I showed. So the, the I love pop music as well. And you also had South American salsa music in there. <laughs> yes, that that as well, and um, all different different types. But uh, yeah, I I love dancing also to to pop music. You were actually dancing on stage. There was a wonderful and, and a beautiful outfit, I must say as well, just perfect for dancing. So it was it was really a joy to watch you on stage, and to see the joy that you gave everybody else. I hope you felt the energy coming back to you from the audience because it really, I felt, transformed the energy in the room when you came on and performed. Thank you so much. Yes, it's, uh, we felt it and there was a moment of interaction also with the audience and everybody participated uh, really nicely and that's the, the most beautiful thing to see that what we do really uh, comes to, through to the audience. How did you meet your fellow band members? Um, when I put together the band for, for Authentica, I was looking for... Um, musicians who would connect with the spirit of the music that I would wanted to make and each of us are from different uh, countries also so Cyril is from Lebanon, Amit is from India and Charles is from the UK and I have other musicians also who contribute um, and collaborate, who I collaborate with for the recordings for example um, and we just released our single Call of the Nights, the song that I played in the TED talk and a lot of musicians uh, contributed to that and it's all about um, if they can identify with what we want to make and tell us about that song because it has a beautiful meaning to it. So the song Call of the Night is about how the evening can be more of a beginning than the morning because it's a time when you can leave the worries of the day behind and you can connect more with what is in your soul. You can turn your attention to to the, the inwards, the world that you have and then um, express what needs to be expressed and your true self can connect with others. And finally, as another job that you possess, not just being a wonderful musician, you work here in the Philharmonie. So tell us about your day job and how do you feel about Ted taking over today? So my um, so-called day job, which happens a lot on the weekends also, is um, in the education department of the Philharmonie. And there I lead workshops for kids, teens and adults. And they, uh, they, they are moments where we creatively make music together. And I also do shows with the orchestra, with the Philharmonic Orchestra, where I'm a presenter on stage. And we do all kinds of uh, activities, also festivals for um, young audiences all throughout the season. And the fact that TED is happening at the Philharmonie is uh, just really great because it's also a place dedicated to music, to performing and even if somebody makes uh, a talk that is not about music, still performance means sharing uh, your ideas and to share your ideas on a stage that is really built for people to listen to, the hall that is made for people to come and to open their ears and to also open their hearts to who is talking that is symbolically a really important thing. And what do you think about performance through voice? Spoken word. Through the, the spoken word is one of the richest and most varied uh, things you can do in terms of putting your own individual touch in what you do, either if you sing to, uh, alone or together with others. And the spoken word, even you as a radio presenter, it's through the voice that you connect with the audience and it could be something more personal than that. Martina, I know a lot of people have moved into the audience now, so I know you can relax, enjoy the next six talks. Thank you so much for giving us so much joy in the audience. Thank you so much. <laughs> Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio. Hello, Kuhn, fourth speaker of the day. I heard a lot of laughs in the audience from your talk, which is not necessarily obvious given your talk was on cybersecurity. 
No, it's true because cyber is associated with technology which seems to be complex for most users or, or, or people uh, at home. I try to make it accessible for everyone and show where the complexity lies. You absolutely did that. And uh, myself and Emma, because we were busy uh, recording the previous interview, we had to sneak in through the back. And I was listening to your talk, uh, listening to all of the things you were saying to us as consumers of technology, but not working in it like you. Some incredible statistics. Are we likely to get hacked in our lifetime? Of course, it's obvious. We need to live and deal with the fact that we are getting hacked. It's, it's just like driving a car. It is obvious that we will have an accident one day or another, and we need to prepare for that. In a car, you get the proper training when you receive your license. In technology, and especially if you're a company, you need to train to be prepared, just like a fire drill for a cyber drill. And when it comes to cybersecurity, what is the best way for us to protect ourselves? Well, follow your gut and think again. I mean, most of the attacks are not that sophisticated and they happen because it's not a technology issue. Phishing is a psychology issue and you, we people tend to click and believe everything we read. Although if this would happen in real life to us, we would not react the same way. So we need to trust our gut again and not rely always on the technology that it will protect us. However, there are some emails that come through to me that look incredibly real, and I know my mother and everything as well, she feels the same way. Um, you know, for example, Post, when Post send us an email, and it looks so real, and then I look at the email address, but an older person, dare I say an older person, but I'm thinking of my mother here, she might not look at the email address to see who yeah. it's from. Of course, uh, you, there will always be people victim to it, but if our mothers and, and grandmothers and grandfathers don't know what to do. They shouldn't do anything. And they should be, call people like yourself, their kids, their grandkids perhaps, and ask them about it. Do you think it's legitimate? Emails are not that urgent. If you respond to an email five days later, it's still fine. It's not instant messaging, right? I, I like that. I like that. That makes me feel better about the emails that I have not got through yet. So tell us about your work then and why you care so deeply about this. Well, of course, I have a, a, a natural gift, I think, to understand complex things and, and technology. But my passion lies in understanding why they fail. And of course, because that they fail, that creates security problems. And I like to bring that amongst people to help them understand where, where we're going because Look at yourself, 20 years ago, you weren't using as much as technology as you are today. Um, just for the sake of the interview, you used new technology you didn't use 25 years ago. Our lives are dependent on that technology. We cannot live without it anymore, and that will not change. That will only evolve further. If we like technology that much, we need to take care of it. It's like your garden. If you don't water the plants, they die. If you don't keep your systems up to date, eventually you will get hacked and the system will die. So that's for us to look after our own technology and I can understand that when it comes to our own emails, for instance. However, most of us will have bank accounts, we will have uh, a lot of security information with other companies. So are companies doing enough to protect our data? No, they aren't. That's the short answer. Of course, there will be a lot of companies that do actually the right things. But there are a lot of companies that are very careless about our data because data, of course, is a source of information 
And if you might believe some others, they will say data is the new oil, though, so there's money to be made. Um, but I think um, the ball lies on two sides of the camp. Of course, companies need rules and regulation to prevent them from doing harm to, to our data. But also we need to think with whom we share data. Do you really need um, a scale balance to, to measure how much you weigh your blood pressure and then share it over the internet? Do you really need that as a citizen or as a user? Personally, I don't think so. Some data need to be kept private and it's only you that can keep it private. Don't rely on others to do that. I think on that example, when it's a health data point, some people think that by accumulating a number of health data points through different sources, they can get feedback in that loop of information. Yes, other companies can use that information, but hopefully they would think about that as a return to themselves to learn about how they can improve their own health, perhaps. Yeah, of course, but then they need consent from you. And, and of course, I support those programs under certain conditions. It cannot be that consumer products now suddenly all have to be connected in order to work or properly. That cannot be the goal. I mean, there's no real requirement to have a weight balance that is connected to the internet if you don't want to. You need to have the choice. If you feel free or good about it to share that data, fine. But you need to take the consequences as well. But if I am a consumer that doesn't like to share that and consider that very private, I must have the ability to do so. And I feel that we don't have always that choice anymore. Now, apart from everything else, you've just done a very successful TED Talk, had the audience laughing more than any other TED Talk today. What advice do you have for other tech experts like yourself who work in the field of cybersecurity or something like this to make all of this technology chatter and all of the jargon that goes into it comprehensible to mere citizens like us? Well... Explain it to, to your kids. If they didn't understand it, change the, na the narrative because then people won't understand it. I mean, my wife helped me growing into that space because she is a, an, a teacher from educational background. She told me, look, you need to simplify, simplify, simplify. Even though it's very complex, if we boil it down to something understandable, people will help and that will make it a, a lot securer for everyone. And finally, can we rely on people like you to help put in place the systems that we need to secure our data? Well, of course we can. I mean, why do we put everything in the cloud today? Some parts of your private life that are digitalized should stay at home on a hard disk, not somewhere stuck away in the cloud that you don't manage. It's as easy as that. Go to a, uh, an IT shop or... Um, hi-fi.lu in Luxembourg, buy an external hard disk, put all your pictures on there because the day you lose your cloud password, your digital life is down the drain. And imagine a lot of people already lost all the pictures of their, their childbirth, etc. I mean... That's tragic. It's, it's tragic, right? And it's as simple as putting it on a hard drive at home. Thank you. Thank you, Kern. With that advice, we should all go and race to do that, including myself. Thank you so much. Enjoy your champagne. Congratulations. Thank you. The Lisa Burke Show. So now I'm with the dancing group. We had an amazing, amazing hip-hop demonstration. But Yogo, first of all, you gave us a great story about not being a lawyer, not being a doctor, not being stereotypically Luxembourgish in your career choice. Why dancing? 
Well, I guess it all started just seeing these break dancers in a park and being like, that's cool, I want to try that too. And uh, yeah, that's what lit the spark. And uh, taking the first dance classes and uh, traveling made me really realize, okay, this is actually what you want to do with your life. You mentioned in your talk that it's quite lonely. Yeah, because I guess um, not a lot of people can understand this path that we choose because it's a lonely road and it's not let's say the conventional road about getting to school going to university getting a fixed job basically we are everything we are our own manager the own accountant we are the dancer we are the performer we are everything and it's lonely because a lot of people cannot relate to this lifestyle Introduce us to the dancers here, your team. So, the team is uh, amazing. So, we have uh, the dancer to my right, we have Simi, and then we have Melanie, we have Randy, and we have Nordin, the crazy break dancer. Yeah, I saw, I saw all of that. You're all amazing. And Derek said that break dancing is now an Olympic sport. I had no idea. Yeah, it is entering the Olympics now in Paris in 2024. When are you entering? Well, um, hopefully next year also. No, I guess probably in two or three years. We can't talk about it. We're still trying to get the next step in Luxembourg first, and then we see what we can do in the outside world. And for what we saw choreographed, it was Melanie and you who uh, were the choreographers for that. Is that correct? No, you said not. <gasps> Almost correct. Uh, so we had uh, Claudia Urhausen, who unfortunately couldn't be here today. I knew us. it was a female. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so Claudia Urhausen and myself, we choreographed this piece. Um, and, uh, but our dances here are mainly, let's say, the professional dances we have. Uh, we live out of it. It's our main income. It's our uh, life, basically. And when it comes to choosing the music that you dance to and thinking about how to choreograph, give us an idea of that. I mean, it also illustrates and it, it sort of parallels what Martina was doing with music. But when it's in your mind, it's a similar creative process, perhaps. Tell us about the building blocks to building that creation. I guess we all um, understand the music differently. And um, it's really just the sparkle again needs to be there. When we hear a song, if the sparkle is there, we might go like, mm, I feel like doing something with this music to express something. But I feel everyone has their own way of doing it. Uh, for myself, it can be a particular style. I know Simi, he sees the music completely different than I see. Oh, how, does, how does Simi see the music? <laughs> um, it's a difficult question, I think. I think um, since I have like a very different style in terms of I combine a lot of like contemporary and hip-hop, I use a lot of... Um, yeah, the melodies, uh, the the intonation of singing a lot, uh, not specifically like lyrics in general. And how on earth do you dance without pulling your ear? You've got a long earring in, and that looks to me like a danger point. Uh, yeah, I always have like quite a lot of jewelry on when I dance. I think it's just like a matter of getting used to it. You've had no accidents. Never had an accident, no. <laughs> My God, that, that, that just looks like something many years ago. I, I did trampolining at school and we were not allowed any jewellery for all sorts of potential accidents. Anyway, super, super successful. Melanie, how is it to be the female in this group? Um, well, it was, first, first of all, a surprise. It was not planned. Um, but I know these guys for a long time. So for me, it's just sharing the stage with like family. And why have you chosen this type of dancing? Because, the, you know, all of you could have chosen many forms of dance. Why this type? I don't know. It's just a way of expressing, like, 
each single one of us has a different way of expressing themselves and we just always try to put ourselves like a little bit of our own sauce in like choreographies so we always try to make whatever we feel comfortable and like want to express. And I saw you backstage uh, before you performed and you were there walking through the steps. Is it hard to remember a choreographed piece? Um, well, for some people it's more difficult to remember steps than others. Others just have it naturally that they just know steps. But I think what we fight most before a uh, performance is with the adrenaline coming on stage, it plays your brain. <laughs> so we try to have this adrenaline that we already have before being backstage. We try to use that to go over the choreo so our brain and our body knows what's happening no matter what happens on stage. <laughs> so that's what you saw. <laughs> yeah, I can, yeah the, the mechanics of remembering the steps despite the adrenaline bursting through the brain cells. Now, tell me about the outfits here. Who chose that? Well, uh, Mr. Diogo. <laughs> and do you approve of the outfit choice? Yeah, I guess we are the same. So I guess it's a nice crew to, to watch dancing. So I guess the colors matches and uh, yeah. No, no, no. It looked really good on stage. I can tell you, it did look good. I suppose you couldn't give me another answer there. So how long have you been dancing? I've been, I've been dancing quite long. Um, I started with breakdance when I was nine and then I went into conservatory and then after that professionally actually so it's been quite long I'm not gonna say my age so <laughs> well you're very young you're very young that's okay but I mean it's been a while and is it possible to make a living a real living out of being a dancer in Luxembourg I mean in Luxembourg it is but you really have to go for it and not just hundred like um, just 80% or something it's just everything or nothing because you really need to um, be able to um, just go out of the country and try to make make it out you know as a dancer over there and then you know because jobs in Luxembourg it's not that you don't have that much of jobs that here in Luxembourg so you really have for dancing <laughs> of course of course yeah. I mean I guess not just for dancing and the art part maybe it's quite difficult but uh, as a dancer it's quite difficult to have something in Luxembourg quite fixed so you need to go outside of the country and then like today we have some jobs so you know you can mix it up a little bit and have a little bit from everything but it's quite hard. Yeah, it was super great to watch. Now you, your head, does it hurt? No, not at all. I mean in the, in the beginning there's a lot of practice obviously but um, no, it's it's not hurting. I mean, it. it the I, I say that because you are dancing on your head, yeah, yeah. and we want to know for those of us, which is, I'd say, the majority of people in the world, we can't do that. You've got great hair. Does that help? Yeah. Well, yeah. I have I have big hair. It's, it's um, but it cautions a little bit. <laughs> but uh, no, um, the name breakdance doesn't come necessarily because we're going to break yourself something. You know, it's it's more about. Uh, of a historical perspective of why called, it was called breakdance. So, um, but no, it doesn't hurt. Like there's a lot of practice behind it, and um, like like all of them, they they dance for a long time, and me included. Um, so so yeah, no, don't worry about it. No no head has been hurt in this <laughs> in this story. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. So the final word to you then. How do you find your dancers? They're the best. Oh, okay. Well, on that happy note, go and have your water, go and rehydrate. I'm sure you're very, very thirsty. It was just so great to watch you perform on Thank stage. You so much. And again, we were just sitting there watching you, but you gave us so much energy. Thank you and keep going. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
The Lisa Burke Show. Hello, Marisha. Hi. You gave us a great talk. Thank it you. was the fifth talk of the yes, day. Yes, it was. And it was about how we don't need to be a vegan to help no, climate change. No, you don't. Uh, but one thing you can do, which is impactful, is ours. Ask big corporations, like, what are their emission reduction targets? And the reason being, you showed us one of these, you know, incredibly scary maps. It was a map of time and the reduction that we need to produce in order to reach the climate goals, in order to stop climate warming as it is projected at the moment. It doesn't seem feasible that we can do that, but you pointed out that the top 100 companies produce the most in fossil fuel emissions, and therefore your big question, if you're going for a job, is... Sorry, I couldn't hear that. The big question when you go for interview with these companies. So what are the the emission reduction targets of this company, and what are your progress towards that? And where did you get this idea from? Well, I actually work in this space, so I do work for one of these big companies, and I have seen through my own work that asking this question really forces a lot of companies to actually set these targets. And when you have companies that set these targets, generally it needs to go to the board, it has to be approved by the CEO, they put it out there, you start creating annual reports, and that really drives companies to think of innovative ways to transform their businesses, whether that's switching to renewable energy, investing in new vehicles, and I've seen it at a much faster pace. You know, the organization I work with needs to order like over 100,000 electric vehicles to get to where they need to go. And, you know, you and I can only order maybe one or at maximum two electric vehicles, right? So for me, the idea of scale was very intriguing and that it's much easier to convince a smaller number of actors rather than trying to target like 8 billion people. I'm just a pragmatic person and when I look at the numbers, I'm like, yeah, I think that makes more sense. That makes perfect sense. And yeah. the whole idea came because you wanted to do a walk in Mont Blanc. Yes. But your walk was cancelled because of a heat wave. Yes, correct. And um, I mean, like I said in my talk, it's a very privileged outcome, you know, like there are way worse things that happen in the world, but it does make you think, you know, like, And the first thing you think about is what can I do? What can I do as an individual? And what I tried to change in my talk is like, change the focus from me as an individual to what I can ask of big organizations, because that's how we can get there faster, quicker. And yeah, we just don't have a lot of time. So we do do not have a lot of time. And again, that graph sits in my head. A great graph really has visual impact. Do you feel hopeful for the future? Absolutely. I'm very, very hopeful. I think um, we have a lot of smart people in the world. Immense intellect. I do not think this is a question of the technology needed. I think we have the right smart people. And I have seen the progress, right? Like, I have seen it. This is my bread and butter, what I do every single day. I'm so hopeful for the future, but I'm more hopeful if I see more and more companies being part of that future. Um, And I I really think it's possible. It's not an issue of money, technology, or time. It's just a matter of will. And, like, there are many different business problems we have solved in the past. And I think this is just another business problem that we need to solve. Right. Another business problem that we need to solve. I I hope that is the case. I I mean, the other great thing about your talk is it proved to us as an audience the power of a question, the power in the question. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So I think it's very hard to know if you don't have a sustainability background, what's the right question to ask, right? So I'm hoping to give everyone a framework where this is the question to ask. Just go out there, ask it, because it's simple, it's straightforward. No one can fluff you or give you BS. It's a very direct question, but it is probably the most impactful question you can ask. 
Well, I can see everybody is heading towards the stage once more. You can relax now. Thank Your talk you so much. Thank you. And thank you for wearing beautiful red and black, the TED colors. Yes. And thank you for leaving us with such a strong, impactful message. Thank you. Thank you for giving me this space. Thank you. Cheers. Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio. So we're back to the third section of the TEDx event here in Luxembourg City. Now, Jonathan, you've just done a wonderful talk on the future of money. The future is certainly not cash by the sounds of it. And yet you had this fantastic statistic about what the Swedish government had to do. Yeah, actually, cash is probably going to disappear, um, but not in the near future. That will take much more time. And uh, it is an interesting uh, fact that in Sweden, um, because of the um, financial inclusion issues, they, uh, they had to introduce a law to uh, actually maintain cash in the society because the, uh, some elderly people were probably struggling to use uh, mobile payments. It's, this actually is the, the main mean of payment now in, in, in Sweden. Uh, but uh, it's interesting to see how it has evolved over time from uh, bartering to uh, cryptocurrencies, basically. Uh, but um, indeed, there are um, some, some potential issues around cash that can be hardly tackled. Uh, the money laundering aspect of it is also something that um, uh, probably most of the governments want to, to fight against and uh, cash is actually the only way of, of uh, uh, actually um, uh, going round and, and, uh, and not um, uh, circumventing, yeah, circumventing the exactly the, the laws. So um, yeah, it's interesting to see how it has evolved over time. It's really, really interesting, but I was on a recent trip to Berlin and to my surprise, they like to use cash and it's to do with lack of trust in the digital world. And I must say also, Kuhn this afternoon talking about cybersecurity doesn't fill us with confidence. <laughs> it's true. So it depends also on the culture in uh, different countries. Uh, as I said, in the Nordics, they're probably more into mobile payment, electronic payments. Uh, uh, but it, it's also a, a given fact that in Germany, they like uh, notes. And actually, in, uh, in Europe, if you have 500 euros notes, it's because of Germany mainly, because it's, it's not so much used in other countries. Uh, they, they pushed for it to have the 500 euro note. Uh, I, I was so surprised when I went there because I was trying to pay for restaurant meals with card, of course, which was accepted, but then to leave a tip. I, I don't carry a lot of cash and it was a very odd experience for me. You then had this wonderful story about uh, young children being born right now they will probably only use mobile phones for their payments in the future. It's my prediction, at least. I don't know if um, someone will probably prove me wrong there. But, um, um, yeah, clearly I can't see any future um, for this younger generation, the Generation Alpha. Um, it's probably not even a mobile phone. It will be a different device. Uh, but um, you'll have a digital identity and use that to actually pay and transfer money from an account to another account. So, um, but it's interesting to see that um, when when you go in, in, in these um, preschools, uh, you ask kids to show what money is and they'll point you to a phone. 
never to cash. That's, that's, that's interesting. That is absolutely fantastic. I love it. Now, going back to your own story, you wanted to be an aerospace engineer, <laughs> which is incredible in itself. You were in Toulouse, you know, heart of Airbus and all things engineering there in aerospace. And you explained very wonderfully well and clearly in your talk why that didn't happen because it was very close to 9-11 and then you got this internship in the digital world that you had not planned. Are you happy with how life has turned out? I think you, you've, you've got to embrace these um, uh, accidents in life, uh, meaning um, you've got to adapt to every situation and it, it, it opens new doors. Uh, honestly, I think that uh, if I hadn't met the uh, Patrick Abadi, who was the CEO and the founder of 123 Multimedia, I wouldn't be in Luxembourg today, but probably doing something completely different. But um, um, the, the, the way we have to see it, and I'm convinced of that, is that uh, you've got to seize any opportunity that you're, you're offered in life. And that, that was one doesn't mean that it always converts but it's uh, it's it's still uh, it's human you've got to remain very hum human and uh, and uh, so it's it's um, nothing is planned in advance i don't think it was that's the the general course of life and we have to kind of flow along the river of life as it turns out uh, and then thinking about where we are which is luxembourg which is the heart of so many financial institutions when somebody might want to move into the finance world now and they're starting off thinking about what they want to study, it seems to be a very fast changing world. What would you suggest they study? Ah, it's difficult to say because actually I was studying at the uh, Toulouse, Toulouse School of Management, so it, it was probably more around procurement and, uh, and so I tried to keep it as open as possible. Um, but uh, sometimes you can start in something completely different. And I remember when I was um, a student, I used to do summer jobs, and this, the, the, there was this guy, um, for, I was working in a, in a factory, and uh, there were <laughs> mattresses and uh, you know, loading lorries with all these mattresses and all, which is, is a tough job, and uh, especially when it's very hot in the summer and all. And there was this guy who uh, worked there, and um, his passion was to go hiking. And so he um, managed to get a deal with the, uh, the employer saying, okay, I, I, I will work three days per week. I do my 40 hours uh, in three days. And then it gives me two extra days to go hiking for a long, very long week. And then he would do that. And that's uh, that's, that's um, something that uh, I was always impressed by because his goal was basically to find a way to finance his true passion. So keep it open, but also see, well, you, you can have some, some twists in life and, and so on. So, yeah. Okay. So I'm not sure that's entirely answered my question, but, <laughs> but let's, let's move from finance to financing our lifestyle. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lisa. The Lisa Burke Show. So Mathieu, you've given us a talk on the future of virtual reality, augmented reality and fusion reality and mixed reality. What's your version of the next reality we're going to be living in? Actually, doing this TED talk was a good exercise for me because usually I present what we do and we try to sell what we do at the current moment. But trying to imagine the future of virtual reality, and that's why I, it took me a lot of time and we, 
uh, I worked on this fused reality, which will be something quite similar that we know actually, but with a lot of more technology and AI behind. So uh, it's going to be a really tricky period. And I, my job is to follow this trend um, as much as I can. You mentioned something that was really, really interesting to me, which is that AI, we're talking about it all the time, we're having all sorts of interviews on it, and there's fear about it as well. Um, and you said that we won't be able to legislate correctly for AI, and you would hope with the conversation around virtual reality and everything to do with that, hopefully by having the conversation earlier, we can legislate correctly. I'm a bit pessimist maybe on the topic, but AI for me, it's already on, the, the movement is already on, so trying to regulate, we. If one country decides to regulate, for instance, the US, they will, they will try to uh, to regulate AI. Another country won't regulate, and all the, the companies will develop in the other country. So now it's a bit too late, I think. And that's why I'm, I, when I talk about immersive technology, I just want people to be aware that we go, we're going to face the same problem in a few years if we don't react uh, now. So, and. I, I would like people not to be only consumer of technology, but we need to have their own opinion, try try and imagine maybe the future of, uh, of those technologies. So, uh. Does anything worry you about the future when you're living in it? You're, you're, you gave us the, the fantastic visual images. I particularly like the, the image of the, the boy with the glasses, you know, literally tripping over wires. But I mean, that was just a funny cartoon. But does anything worry about you yes, in the future? I do, and uh, there's a discussion I have always with my mom. You know, she, she, she was worried when I was playing PlayStation in front of my screen, and she, she thinks that, um, and this generation thinks that people can be violent using, uh, using uh, PlayStation and violent games. But I don't think so because there's a distance between you and the screen. You have a remote, a cable. Well, it's not not a cable for for the new generation. Uh, but what I'm really afraid of it's virtual reality and games in virtual reality because there's. There's some shooting games uh, that are so real, and you are you have a gun in your hand, and you can you can really literally kill people and feel uh, feel the have this feeling. And if we don't regulate this, and if we, if we don't supervise this, that's where I have a big fear. So I'm I believe in the technology for good, and it's a real the future. But we have to be very careful. And when it comes to all of those games where there's yes. th this huge violence, a lot of shooting, as you've just described, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the mass shootings in America, mm -hmm. and, and it's usually a guy who goes and does that. But if they're doing that at home, in their own safe environment, not hurting anybody, do you think that could be used for good then? I depend. It depends because that's really a, a really complex question, and you know, VR is going to raise a lot of questions. For instance, we don't know what's the correct age to stop to wear glasses because some people say that uh, under six don't put VR glasses because kids are building their own reality. So if you put them in a virtual reality, you can really confuse them. So uh, to answer this question, it's really complex, and I think we are this on extreme case where. If we even be talking about VR, there's other problems that needs to be solved in, in those cases. But um, yeah, really, it's a, it's a constant evol evolving technology. And if it's a technology that is pushed only by a financial aspect, bad things can have happen in the future. So that's why I insist about this regulation aspect and awareness of the, 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 the public. But that's, uh, that's really the message I want to leave. Now, you've just flown in from New York via London to make this TED Talk. You have also got a passion for travel. How do you manage to you know, do everything that you do with Virtual Rangers and also have this passion for travel? 
Yeah, so yeah, you, you got me there. I, I, used, I, I travel a lot. I love traveling. For me, traveling is something very important. Uh, if I give you an example, the first three years of the, my company, I didn't travel at all. I was stuck in Luxembourg. And as we don't have so much big VR community, uh, I was turning around, finding, trying to find a new solution. But when you travel, meet new people, new businesses, try to find new cases, uh, that's so enriching, enriching and uh, that's, uh, that's what I'm looking for. And now we are lucky enough to be asked on other countries and they're looking for our technology. So it's, uh, I can mix one of my best passion with my job and that's, uh, that's fantastic. And to answer your question, how do I deal with, uh, with my team still and have a really nice production? Uh, we simply build a really trust with, our, with my team and uh, even if I'm somewhere else in the world, I'll always connect and we do always our daily chat to be sure that uh, everything is on, uh, in order. But they're really autonomous, so I'm lucky. M many entrepreneurs tell me, oh, uh, how can you do this? Uh, I'm just saying uh, I have the best team possible and uh, there's a great trust between us. So. Mathieu, I'm sure you need to sleep, although you probably <laughs> don't need to sleep, but it's so good to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. The Lisa Burke Show. Lea Linster, you gave the final talk of the day here at TEDx Luxembourg City, and it was such a talk about passion, full of passion. I did not know you're the fourth generation of your family yes. to be a chef. Yeah, I am. And uh, I'm the first girl, of course, because all the others were men. But already in 1898 was written our house. Uh, restaurant Linster. Café Restaurant Linster. Yeah. yeah, and then, so I like it as well. And what I particularly like is the story you gave us in Frissange, which is that you already had a captive market coming in. All yeah. of the travellers going down to the south of France yes. for their summer holidays, yeah. they would stop. And your family seemed to do everything. Restaurateurs, they also provided the gas, they provided everything. bank everything. transfers, everything. everything. Yes. So you really had a business training at home. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and I was... Uh, the fun because I could uh, try everything and give my best you know what I learned very early even if you do it for play or for good whatever always do it the best you can Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then you also started off in law. Your son started off in economics. Yeah. But you were cooking for your professors and your fellow students. So it was always in your body, as you said. <laughs> yes. So I didn't know, but my body knew that I would end up as a chef. And that's actually what I wanted to say. But, uh, you know, when you're on stage or so many things go through your head, um, you do not need to chase your passion because your passion finds you wherever you are if there is one yeah. yeah and that's such a lovely message but I think a lot of people might feel sad when they hear that because they don't know how to find that they don't know where to search yeah. for that that's why I, I came back to this what did you play when you were a child or what did your parents do or where did you grow up and what did you do for free at home I think that that's all it remains in, in to you and, and you know they are, you get skills that you're not even aware of it, but later on you say, oh, I learned this when I was a child already, yeah. And you gave us the fabulous story of the Madeleine, and you, you actually provided a Madeleine for everybody yes. here. Uh -huh. So over 300. Yes. I have not been able to eat mine yet because oh, we were not yeah, allowed to eat it in the room. <laughs> I will, don't worry, after this interview, I'll be eating and, it. And, and, this, and the challenge was to wrap them uh, in each one, because, yeah. uh, yes, because... Uh, we didn't want people to grab into the yeah, yeah the, the crumbs and everything. I think like this was nice, no? It was and it also was because 
the crumbs and everything. So I think it was a good idea to wrap them in individually. Yes, they were all individually wrapped, Madeleine, with your beautiful signature on each box as well. But coming back to the story of the Madeleine, which I loved, you're famous for your vanilla ice cream and your creme brulee, yeah. and then you had a whole load of egg whites yes. left over, and you thought, what can I do with egg whites? And I invented then the Madeleines. And you had a very good taster. Yeah, 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 the Grand Duchess, yes. Yeah. The mother, yeah, our Grand Duchess uh, of that time. And it was almost 40 years ago. So yeah. they lived like uh, that long already. And I never changed uh, the recipes since then. How do you know what tastes good? You've won amazing global accolades. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I missed this. I could have told you that. You know, when you really, when you really have something good in your plate or in your cup, when... You get sad when it's over. Oh, yes. 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 Okay. Because when you do not get sad when it's over, that means it was not that good. And what's your favorite item to eat? What's your favorite thing to eat? No, I cannot tell that. There's no, too no, many. No. This morning, I tell you, we have, I made the bread always in my restaurant. And this morning, I only had a little roll like this. I cut it into, I put it into the toaster. I put some butter on it. And I said, to my, when I took a bite, I said, I would let everything behind me of all these pastry shops as they are there now, just for this bite. Yeah. So Bread. Because it was perfect. It's genuine. You can feel that it's made uh, right with the, real with the right ingredients. And it gives you all the pleasure you can have in your palate. It's beautiful. I'm a, I'm a lover of bread myself. <laughs> you must be very often frustrated, no? Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely am. <laughs> and when it comes to getting the best ingredients, a lot of people think that we're losing the quality in our soil. Yeah, they're not what they have. They don't take the time to find them, but they still exist, and uh, and they exist even very good. Yeah. Oh, and in Luxembourg, where? No, no, no. For me, it's not so much about local. If we have something local here, like Boskop apples, I love them very much, and I buy them here. Of course, I love our butter. We have the best butter you can imagine, and uh, I like that so much. Yeah. And then, for anybody who wants to be a chef, you also mentioned that you love to work. You said you're not yeah. so good in your private life. No. I imagine it's because you yeah. have to work a lot. Yes. The hours of a chef are very tough. That's why. And that's probably why I say this, said this. Yeah, the hours of uh, a chef are very tight, but I never, never anybody could dis disillusion me or, or, or discourage me with talk like this. I said, so what? I said, if it's hard for me, it's hard for others. And if it's too hard for the others, then I can beat them. <laughs> your son is now yeah, yeah. coming in your footsteps. Have you yes. any advice for him? Uh, well, to love it. That's it. There's nothing else. If he loves it, he makes everything right. Just love it. And also love success, because success doesn't come for free. We know it. And when it's there, cherish it, love it, and use it right. You also made that point in your talk that the value of success, to really appreciate success, to fight for success yeah. and to be proud of your success. Yes. Um, and, and that's a really nice thing. We don't often hear women talking like that about success. Well, yeah, I'm not. That's uh, one barrier I never had as a woman. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really happy. I grew up in freedom, too. And, uh, and I was... Uh, as I said, uh, you never get fired when you do it at home, as in church, you never get a tomato when you sing wrong. <laughs> that was such a funny line, you don't yeah. get fired if you're working at home. Yeah, never, never get fired. And, and that, that's why you should take the advantage of it to train mm -hmm. and to become better and to improve. Mm -hmm. 
and I could do it when I, I you know I went to that stupid uh, university uh, nothing to do with it but I could see how they were pleased that I could cook later on my university even was bragging with me that was nice. Yes, yes, so they were proud that you had been to that university. Uh -huh. yeah. And so you saw that what you did, which was your true passion inside you, it gave others great joy. It gave it joy. It gave others yes, joy. That's what, it's a passion you can share, which is fantastic, no? Yeah. If you cannot share it, then... Yeah. And so what's your advice for any will-be chefs listening to this, anyone who wants to be a chef? If it, to love... To, uh, yeah, to, 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 to love it and stay with it. Because when you really love it and you have passion for it, you do not give up that easily, which is very important. Because nowadays you see people, when they try, oh, I want to be this and that, the first problems show up, boom, they leave. So when you are really passionate, no, don't do that. You never will do it. You stay with it. Yeah. We, we will end on that positive passion point there. Yes. Leia, thank, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. And yeah. thank you for feeding us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and thank you for, for loving it. Because... When we love things, when we do something we really love, it cannot be wrong. And when other people love it, that's a real pleasure. And it's so nice to live this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leah. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio. Dirk. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Can you still talk? Um, yes, I think. <laughs> I've caught you at the end. I didn't catch you at the beginning. Um, you are the organizer of everything TEDx in Luxembourg City. Uh, I think, I hope, no, you don't drink, do you? I don't, no, no, not at all. I, I stopped drinking actually back at university. So, uh, so how will you celebrate? Time with the family, I think, to be perfectly honest. I know I mentioned it from stage, but this event takes so much time to put together. And but it's a family event because your wife is actually standing in front here dressed in red. You've got them all roped in. Two of your daughters That's were right. there. Oh, your entire two daughters were there on stage helping you. And so it has become a family event. And you've become a stalwart of Luxembourg and everything, Ted. Thank How many so volunteers did you have? So this time, I think it was 35 in total. Um, so 10 officers and 35 volunteers. So 45, I guess, in total. Um, but yeah, I mean, without, without these guys, it just wouldn't be possible. Um, they're, they're amazing. The marketing team, uh, the interactive experience team that you saw around here. Because of course, the TED Talk, it's TED, the TED event, it's TED Talks. But what's really great is to get the people that attend the events to engage with each other. And, you know, that's one of the things that Rebecca came on board. She works at Amazon. She's a data scientist. And she figured out, okay, what can we do to really engage people? And wow, what she did today, amazing. And a wonderful venue. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Can you imagine? Look at this place. It's absolutely stunning. You have my favorite room in the whole of the Philharmonie, which is the chambre uh, you know, music for, for chamber music room. I love that room so much. It's like a cocoon of red. Oh, it's, it's, it's lovely. So we were here before in 2019, I think it was, and we had the, the big hall, which, of course, is amazing. But... The thing is, we're, we're always trying to show the best of Luxembourg on our TED Talks, and so we're trying to change venues every time, which is really complicated. I'm not sure that was such a good idea, but um, I came back in here and came for the first time to the Chamber Music Room for a concert, um, and I, I sat down, I thought, why on earth have we not done a TED Talk here? 
our TED event. And so I just knew it had to be here. It is stunning. I mean, It's my favorite room. Yeah, as soon as people see the videos, you'll see how it comes out on video. It's amazing. I'm so proud to be able to get these videos online to a global audience just to see the room. I mean, the speaker's obviously amazing, but the room, wow. And the, the theme, Breaking Barriers, where did that come from? So actually, it was the entire team got together and we shortlisted all the different themes that we were thinking about. And Breaking Barriers got the most votes. It was just one of those things. It was really a decision by consensus. When do you start finding the speakers? How long before the event do you start finding the speakers? So in an ideal world, I would start a year before. So now we're already thinking about our next event. Um, now, of course, things change so quickly. We like to look for the ideas first. So if we're looking for ideas now, it's very possible that they're no longer relevant in a year from now. So, but we also do like seeing the best of Luxembourg. So for example, this time, Leia Linster, if she came this year, next year, or the year after, she would still be as amazing. She's, she is the icon here. Bringing the food to feed us too. Can you imagine? I convinced her to bring her madeleines. 350 madeleines she brought. She's Individually wrapped. She's an absolute darling. In fact, I didn't know that it would even be possible because the thinking was, let's get the madeleines in the room. Let's distribute it to everybody. It would be amazing for the video as well. But of course, you can't eat in these rooms. So... It was very difficult to hand them out and get people to not eat until they came outside. But it was amazing. It just, it worked out in the end. So brilliant. And you do a great job of finding great performers as well. We had Martina with the music. We had Diogo with the dancing. So you mix the talks and the big ideas with the ideas and the performance art. Yeah, so, and I'll, I'll be honest, Performance are actually really difficult to find. I think when people think about TED Talks, they think about the ones that they saw in class when they're at school. And so the traditional thought for TED Talks is it's an inspiring talk or it explains something complicated in a simple way. But people don't really think about performances. But actually, there are if you go to TED.com, there are amazing performances from all sorts of very, very famous artists. So, of course, when we put a call to speakers, the performers, they don't really even think that it's possible. So, it, I, fortunately, I've done a little bit of work with the Philharmonie, and of course, Martina works here. And so when I was talking to them here, she, her name came up. So I actually contacted her, and she thought, oh my word, is that even possible? And so she did it, and wasn't she amazing? Oh my word, yeah, that she, lady she was wonderful. Talent. Yeah, she, she, she and the group, they were absolutely, absolutely. wonderful. We're here also because one of your main passions in life is public speaking. Why is public speaking important? So, it, it's bizarre actually. When I, my first studies, I was a, I basically studied computer science, <laughs> which is really odd. Um, and so... Well, you, useful, but we've heard a lot of talks today where people studied one thing and went on to do different things. That's life. No, absolutely. So my bachelor's degree was in a mathematical-based uh, management degree and computer science. And then I did an MBA shortly afterwards because I was an IT consultant. I was an SAP consultant. So, And to be fair, it wasn't going badly. But when I did my MBA, I just discovered the passion in the words of Leia Linster. You know, you've got to f let your passion find you. And it just dawned on me. It was this bizarre realization that actually you can know whatever you know, but if you can't communicate it, it's over. So I can go to university and study as much as I want about whatever I want, but unless I can communicate it effectively, 
it just doesn't work. And so I've lived in a lot of countries around the world, in Brazil, in America, in England, in Germany, in France. And what really struck a chord as well was the intercultural element of communication. So I started studying it and then I became a teacher at the University of Antwerp and it just went on from there and I've been teaching it ever since. So yeah, it's, I genuinely, genuinely believe public speaking is this, studying it, understanding it is a single thing you can do for yourself, improving that, that will help the rest of your life. And you were training these wonderful speakers we've had on stage. Are you happy with your students? Yeah, they're, they're brilliant, aren't they? They're, but to be fair, it, it's part of the process, right? We try and find people that have very good ideas. But some of these people are scientists and they're not really used to public speaking. So we spend a little bit of time with them. And then after a while, they kind of, they understand what works. And then they see that it's working. They get really good feedback. And then it's second nature to them. So... So actually, yes, I'm super proud of everybody that was on stage today. They, they were brilliant. What can we hope for next time? When is the next TED event? Dare I say that today when you are just finishing one? Yeah, so, well, we're already looking for a venue. So, so that's, and actually that's not that easy in Luxembourg. So um, yes, what can you expect? It's going to be more of the same, uh, but just pushing it further and further. We, we try every year to... to exceed beyond the last one and actually from the feedback I've been hearing now it seems like they thought it was this one that was the best one so far. I, I think that. Oh wonderful and, and really so that's the goal always just to try and push it further and further. This time we had the interactive experiences that we didn't have last time so, so hopefully next time there'll be something else, something different, something new, something amazing. I'm sure anybody listening can help you find a venue in Luxembourg. Thank you so much for everything you do. I almost called you Ted, because now when I look at you, I think Ted. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dirk, for everything you do for Ted in Luxembourg. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thanks.
Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio.
The Lisa Burke Show. The Lisa Burke Show.